Today, we're discussing articles on mental health and wellness with Dr. Philip George, consultant psychiatrist and addiction medicine specialist from IMU. I see you're comfortably working from home. Well, it's not the real comfort of an office, but let me do it what is available. We recently, we've seen a lot of articles talking about how we can stay safe and stay sane while we're under a partial lockdown or this movement control order because of this pandemic. Now, a lot of articles and mental health practitioners are talking about the effects of this MCO. What are some of the implications of being confined at home for such a long period of time? The range of measures that countries are taking to control the spread of COVID-19 can have a negative impact on people's mental health. And uh, it is common to feel anxiety and loneliness during this period. In the long run, it can also lead to depression and lack of participation and people just becoming more resigned. Additionally, it can affect children as well because they may lose a big chunk of structure and also stimulation that make up most of their you know, normal life. There can be a period of worry and anxiety and this can be learned from their parents. This altogether coupled with the higher rates of infection and you know, increasing rates of death and the information overload that we're receiving can be a real challenge for people and this makes it difficult for them to stay positive in this difficult times as well. Yeah. What you were saying earlier, like loneliness and all, it will not only affect people who are living alone, right? How about families? Yeah, no, absolutely because families can be divided. You know, the extended family may not be able to participate and be part of that whole family group. They can be away from their relatives and friends, their co-workers as well and that all can also contribute significantly to families and you know the feeling of isolation even though they're within their family but the feeling of isolation from the community but would this type of mental anguish be akin to like a prisoner in jail not really because being in quarantine is thought to actually cause something called cabin fever and this is often a distressing claustrophobic feeling that's associated with maybe irritability and restlessness in a patient or a group that's confined in certain spaces or isolated for a long period. Uh, this is not a disease, but it's a description of common symptoms and signs that people under a lockdown may experience. It's not similar to being in jail because the surroundings are familiar. I mean, you still go back to bed in the same bed that you usually sleep on and you are in charge of your own routine. I mean, you can eat when you want, you can you know, do different activities. So it cannot be correlated with you know being in jail, that's for sure. But what about people who, you know, who live in just a smaller space would they get cabin fever yes they would but i think it's important you know for them to spend time getting some sunlight stepping out of their own place even if it's just a balcony being able to observe the environment and surroundings and you know having a routine that actually also has some connection to others so you know if you're in jail you can't be connected as we like yeah uh, but you know when you're at home you can actually be connected with people you love and care as well it's like a jail right. with a balcony <laughs> Our next article, there was a suspected COVID-19 patient. He actually committed suicide in the hospital toilet. Doctor, do you think that this rise in cases of people committing suicide has a correlation 
to the movement control order or to the pandemic? Well, I don't think it can be directly correlated, but there are many indirect correlates. The increased isolation and loneliness that people are already experiencing can be a vulnerability, especially in those who already have underlying mental health issues. There are increased financial issues during this time, and especially for daily wage earners, that can be a huge contributor to their mental health. And as we discussed earlier, the disease and the lockdown can can lead to increased anxiety, stress, and depression. And almost 90% of completed suicide is due to depression. So when those rates increase, then the rates of suicide will also increase. Of course, those who are already experiencing mental health issues prior to this disease outbreak, and they may actually find it hard to access the therapy or go for follow-ups or continue with medication. And that can also increase the risk. Yeah, because your movement is restricted, you can't go see your therapist or get the proper medication. Well, I don't think they restrict you from seeing your therapist or, you know, getting medication, but it's, you know, sometimes the fear of just leaving the home Mm. and the fear of the unknown and some people feel no safety being away from, you know, external uh, activity. The thing that's different is there is a time frame, you know. We all know that the MCO is going to end um, because if infection is not controlled, maybe it'll extend a little bit more. But there will be an end. We've seen it happen in different parts of the world. And so there is this hope, you know. So it's not really like the end uh, because there is still hope that things will, you know, get back to where they were before. So what is the best thing to do for yourself when you just feel like you are losing control? I think the first important step is prevention. So, you know, when we already know that we're going to be in a state of maybe partial lockdown or lockdown or you know, maybe we're developing more fear and anxiety over a disease. We need to look at useful mental health preventive techniques. Put that as the perspective in our lives now. Things like, you know, setting a schedule, engaging in things that are more under your control, like eating healthily, sleeping adequately, exercising regularly, connecting with others on online platforms, and then making sure you avoid boredom. You know, you're working from home, set schedules for your work, or do a new course, do a new hobby, start drawing or you know, art or getting engaged in music that you love as well. Uh, keep your brain active and I think that's really important. Uh, there are periods when you may be in crisis and that's when you need to really look out and identify what you can use to support yourself, like reaching out to others. There are numerous helplines and now there's been a state of media platforms that are providing psychological support as well and professional support. So these are things that we can utilize during crisis as well. So our next article actually gave us five tips for maintaining mental health during a pandemic. And let me just go through the five tips really quickly. First one is better sooner rather than too much later. Number two is health before wealth. Number three is flexible and agreeable. Number four, social connections amid social distancing. And five, count our blessings. So, Doctor, I think you've gone through the article as well. How effective do you think these tips are for maintaining our mental health? Yeah, I think they're very helpful. There's just a few of the many Mm -hmm. tips that people can utilize and use during this period. I think the first tip, coming to terms with the restrictions, understanding that they are important and necessary to control this infection, is being Mm self-aware. I think that's a real important tip. The second is putting more focus on health, which I think, for a lot of us, has not been easy, you know. But now, because of this movement restriction, 
we can start to think about our health a little bit more and make this a new me, you know, a new lifestyle, that our health actually means more than our wealth because wealth is nothing without good health. And third is, of course, being more flexible. And that's, you know, maybe putting new things into your life, you know, investing on your mental health this period, making lifestyle changes that you can carry on even after the MCO is over, also finding new hobbies and new pursuits. I think this is a good opportunity for us to explore that. The fourth is actually being connected. And I think this is a good time for us to actually identify who are the people that we've lost touch with, who can we reconnect with, you know, bringing back old memories and talking about things that happened in the past, you know, because they're just as important as here and now as well. Mm -hmm. And finally, being grateful. I think, you know, Shankar Sanjaram, who is no stranger to light, wrote a recent article in the papers about gratefulness. And I think it's a real healthy attitude to develop maybe a daily gratitude list, especially during this period. Know that we have so many things that we have to be grateful for and maybe even do an audit of our life. You know, in the last three to five years, what are those things that we were grateful for? Now, Doctor, since we are all stuck at home, how can we improve our mental health? Well, this is a good time to find opportunity and adversity. You know, so we're in adverse conditions to find opportunities. And this is where we can invest and improve on our mental health. Like I mentioned, maybe first do an audit. Look at what your daily and weekly buffers are for mental health. How do you cope with stress on a daily level? What were the things that you employed in the past? How effective were they? And what do you need to change in helping you to deal with just looking forward then explore maybe new mental health technique you know things like relaxation technique mindfulness meditation yoga exercise things that you can actually start to rehearse now and prepare yourself for you know the mco is over and life comes back to normal but continue to you know, carry out these activities as well so in the next article we're talking about our frontliners our superhero doctors nurses who are risking their own lives to save people patients with covid19 so Doctor, what do you think motivates them? Well, I like to say it is definitely not just a call to duty or following the instructions of their supervisor. In fact, providing benefit to others is a human instinct. And as all mammals, we already provide care to our young. Some people have more motivation than others to provide care and think about others as well. Mm. So that may motivate them in the beginning to choose a certain career pathway that showcases this pro-social behavior in healthcare as it is in enforcement, the soft skills are actually just as important as knowledge and experience. And so caring and concern are developed during the years of formation, making the frontliners more motivated to want to help and care for others. Now, we've heard that some frontliners are actually isolated from their families for weeks on end now. I mean, that this is to ensure that they do not pass this virus on to their family. But what does this do to their mental psyche, you know? not being able to see their families, working long hours in like uncomfortable protective gears. So actually in a recent publication in the JAMA, it was reported that among 1,257 healthcare workers, 34 hospitals in China over this COVID-19 you know, infection period, 50% reported symptoms of depression and 44% wow. uh, had anxiety symptoms and 34% had sleep problems. Being separated from the family 
is one of those factors. But there are numerous others, such as fears of being infected themselves, risk of transmitting it to the family, long working hours, and dealing with difficult and demanding patients. We have identified this as an important area, and there are various NGOs together with the Ministry of Health working to address this in Malaysia. In fact, Mercy Malaysia, Malaysian Medical Association, some NGOs like Safe Spaces, and various others are actually providing psychosocial support through education, online chats, group activity, support, and own counseling for the frontliners. Oh, that's because great. it's almost like PTSD. After all this, is yeah, it's highly yeah. dramatic. That's right. Well, PTSD typically occurs in people who uh, have a catastrophic life event. Now, this may not be a catastrophic life event unless you are infected yourself, but helping others can trigger off symptoms similar to PTSD, post-trauma stress rather than a disorder per se. So it's not an illness, but it's symptoms similar to PTSD. Yeah, because essentially they're like the army in the front lines fighting a war. Our final article, it's all about this movement control order and how we are still allowed to go out to the pharmacies to get our medication and whatnot. But what should we do when our medication runs out? There are many medications that actually can cause considerable problems if stopped suddenly. The newer antidepressants, for example, if those medications are stopped all of a sudden, they can cause a discontinuation syndrome and people can feel very uncomfortable for up to two to three weeks. Sedatives prescription sedatives, if they are stopped suddenly, they can actually be quite lethal because they can cause delirium or even seizures. And antipsychotics, which are used for serious mental illnesses, if they are stopped, there's a high chance of relapse of illnesses as well. I think it's important to identify, you know, stocks of medication that are available. Most hospitals, government and university hospitals are organizing or have organized options or stopgap measures cope with the NPO. Some university and government hospitals allow refill of medicines for fixed period, especially those hospitals that are already defined as COVID-19 hospitals. So they, you know, for the regular other, other patients, they can actually come up to the pharmacy and collect medication until their new appointments are created. Some private clinics allow repeat prescription dispensing for fixed periods until the new doctor's appointment. And of course, the alternative is to go to the pharmacy, but with you know medications that may need a prescription that need to be in discussion with the doctor, and it may be out of pocket pending if it's in the pharmacy as well. But a lot of these, especially psychotic drugs and whatnot, dispensed by a psychiatrist, you need a prescription, right? So if you're not going out of the house to go see your therapist, you don't get a prescription. What should you do? Yeah, usually patients can call the clinic or the hospital to discuss this and they have processes in place for this. Mm. So some actually have doctors fill out prescriptions online and provide that for patients to pick up from the pharmacy or they arrange it with the pharmacy that's attached to the hospital, give medication until the next doctor's appointment. So how much of medication should we buy? Because at this moment, we know that our MCO is until April 14, but there's a chance that it might get extended. Usually, it would be typically a restricted one-month prescription for those who have not had follow-up. Mm. In some cases, that one month can be extended, especially in those who have been stable and don't really require very much, uh, you know, re-evaluation uh, about their medication. But if you're keeping too much medications, there are many other risks that can occur. One is misuse, abuse, diversion. You know, medication is used by others <clears throat> and inappropriately as well. You need to 
to know how to store the medications and how to reach your children too much medication may mean your storage is not adequate and appropriate. But the other is all medications have an expiry date. If you have too much medication, you might actually exceed the expiry date and you know then the medications may not be as effective as you want them. So keep for at least a month. That's your advice, is it? Yeah, that's what I would typically advise. Yeah, and of course, after that, if the period is going to be extended, you can revisit that with your doctor or the clinic or the hospital.